Today, uh, how many week number? How many already? Something like week 12 of our End Times Ezekiel series. Um, and there's three more after this week before we wrap up in September. And then, and then uh, there'll, be, there'll be other things on this pulpit. But I want to bring you all into this, right? We have been on a journey, okay? God, God uh, 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 rescues His people, His sheep from uh, 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 shepherds who harm them. He puts them in a safe land. And after He does that, He goes to war uh, uh, he, uh, against those who, those who take shots at them, you know, and, not, and, and after that, then there is a gathering, right? He breathes life into the dry bones of, of, of His people and He raises up an army. But you know what? We don't see that army fighting in Gog and Magog last week. You know, we saw God's hand move, right? And that's what we're praying for. And after He has cleared everything, right? The narrative or, or, or the flow of prophetic word in Ezekiel goes to a new temple. There is a temple, and, and then from this temple, from here on, actually it's quite peaceful already, okay? Uh, if, if, you, if you see the flow of prophecy in Ezekiel, by now, all the drama, drama, all finished already, right? All the enemy, enemy, all gone already, purpose already, right? And I say purpose, not mati, because, because you know, it's the, it's the last battle, right? And, and so you see, moving from here, today we're going to look at the temple. Next week, the prince rides in from the east entrance of the temple. And after that, there is water coming out from, the, from, from below the altar. And it flows to become a river and the river and, and, and the water levels go up. And then you see you're taken into the new city that perfect eternal city. We won't jump ahead of ourselves, but that's to give you a little bit of context as to where we are going and where we are today. New temple. All right, let's, I want to jump right into it. I want to jump right into it and show you two points. First point is this, that we are the meeting place between God and the world, right? We are the church, we are the meeting place between God and the world. And number two, there is nothing you can add to the finished work on the cross okay so these are two points okay just before this just before this i just want to say one thing i want to say it seriously i want to get it out there because i want you all to trust my heart i have no loyalty to schools of thought and i have no allegiance to different factions within the church i only have one allegiance which is to the cross and as I share this word with you, I honestly share it with so much fear and trembling because some days the lines between having an allegiance to the cross and having an allegiance to, or, or, or looking like you have an allegiance to some school of thought or some faction in Christianity, it looks blurry. And I want you to know that whatever I say to you today is born out of a deep need to bring everybody to have their allegiance to the cross and to nothing else other than the cross. And with that, I want to get us into this first point. We are the meeting place between God and the world. How many of you guys, you grew up non-Christian, right? You, you, if you grew up non-Christian, can you raise your hand? Yep. Buddhist, Taoist, 
Hindu, uh, 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 if you grew up non-Christian, okay, I see a bunch of you guys raising your hands, right? I'm going through gallery view. Okay, yeah. Now, I grew up uh, uh, with quite a mixed bag. So we went to Buddhist temple, we prayed to Kuan Yin, we prayed to whatever is in the temple, you know. Um, we didn't do a lot of ancestor stuff, you know, even though Chinese New Year Eve, we'll go to my grandmother's house, you know. Um, and and some, we, we went to Hindu temples as well. Uh, went to India on pilgrimage, go to shrines and different temples. Uh, that was my upbringing. Uh, and, and, uh, and it was a very interesting, it was a very interesting, and if I may dare say, in a kind of worldly, world, world way, it was enriching. I, 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 I met lots of different people, had lots of different experiences. And one thing about the temples that I used to visit is that usually there is a deity. Right, there's a deity in the form of of, of the statue. You know, um, uh, sometimes like when we were in India, there was like there were even trees, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So, so what's interesting is that when you go into a Ch Chinese temple, Ta Buddhist temple, Taoist temple, Hindu temple, there will always be a deity or numerous other deities, right? And then you will go and you pray. Uh, uh, um, uh, there, right, and the idea is that you're praying to the deity, and the and 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 that the statue is is, is or the, uh, sometimes Christians call it idol, right? Idol's got many layers of meanings, right? Um, um, is a representation of the of, of the god that you're you're praying to, right? And 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 when you come into to I mean, became a Christian, start reading the Bible, and there's motive of temple as well. And one thing that I start to realize the more I read my Bible is that temple to the Jewish people is very different from temple to Buddhist, Taoists, and Hindus. At least, right? It's, it's quite different. It's quite, I won't say it's phenomenally different, but it's different enough. Because when I was growing up, I was taught that God is omnipresent, right? And so we have this thinking that God is everywhere, right? He's constantly everywhere, which is, which is true, right? He, he is everywhere. If not, you know, he, he can see you. He can see everything. He, can, he knows your heart. He knows everything, right? Um, so in one sense, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But there is another sense in which God related to the earth through having his presence particularly manifest in certain places. And the temple is that place and i want to show you the first slide of of, of a next series of slides right is that in the before temples were um if you look at your bible you'll see that that abraham built altars jacob built altars right and so the so the the ancients built altars and their and and their altars were altars of stone altars of you know uh, um earth and all that i think you know it was a very good place to, to hear about altars was when pastor isaac preached um earlier this year about his favorite chapter of the bible you know which is which is uh, uh exodus 20 right and he shared his last part when altars was so good go back and listen to that right but but the ancients built altars and the altar was a place of presence god's presence would come and literally inhabit that place okay i like the bm word for his hadirat they say pekat okay in bm you say that it was pekat it was really thick right that is where his manifest presence is that's where you can sometimes in the jewish word is is the shekinah of god Right, his 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 manifest, super pregnant, powerful presence is there. That's not quite the same as just saying that he's everywhere. He sees everything. He's omnipresent. It's not quite the same. So for the for for the for the Jewish people, 
there's the whole world, which is a certain kind of like setting. And then there is a particular place, which is the intersection between heaven and earth. And that is literally where God occupies earthly space. He occupies that space, right? That is his space, right? And, and that space is holy. You can't simply play play with that. And so the, the ancients had altars and then over time you know the tribe became bigger they went to egypt they came back they became a big tribe and then it transited from being an, just an altar or the occasional altar it became the tabernacle right and so it's, a, it's this huge rectangular kind of space fenced up and there's a tent in it called the tent of meeting and then there is that is the temple right and you go in and god's presence his pakat presence is supposed to be inside that tent he occupies that space okay it doesn't mean that he's nowhere else everywhere it's just that in that space is the intersection between heaven and earth that is the temple right and over time as you know israel stopped being nomadic right because the tabernacle was such it's a tent literally if god says move they move they pack everything up and then they carry the ark okay uh, um uh, and the, the, the stuff inside the tent, right? Uh, they'll move and then they'll set up. And then when they repopulate a new space, they reset all their tents, right? And so they were nomadic and they moved around. Now, over time, they settled, right? They crossed the River Jordan. They started taking cities. Eventually, they took Jerusalem and then that became the place of their settling, right? So it's, it's a little bit like going from being a hunter-gatherer where you kind of wander around and you, you, and you migrate uh, to becoming an agricultural company. Uh, a society where you just essentially once you start farming the land you're stuck there right and and that's kind of the same kind of transition that takes place for god's family of people his abrahamic family and so eventually um they built the temple king david wanted to build the temple but god said no because you shed too much blood in warfare so your son will build the temple and so solomon's temple was built Wow, and we've read about the splendor of the temple. Inside is lit with gold and all these kind of things, right? And finally, they got like building way, building project, you know. And inside that temple, uh, different courts, okay, like like, and then and then you have the innermost part, which is the most holy place, right? Or also known as the holy of holies and that is the same as the tent of meeting that is is the same as the original altars of the day right which is the place of god's intersection between heaven and earth where god lives on earth his so to speak address is in the holy of holies solomon's temple okay okay so if you grab food and you're sending that's where you go right okay and now and 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 so now here's the thing about solomon's temple right after king solomon uh the the, the whole nation of israel splits into northern kingdom called israel southern kingdom called judah northern kingdom gets gets wiped out uh by the assyrians they are carried to the north and disperse okay so you have your first round of of exiles there and then there's judah the, the the southern kingdom gets attacked by babylon from the east and when babylon comes in from the east they carry them all away to babylon your second major nation uh, uh, uh national um exile of course this one is different they weren't dispersed they were carried on block one group and then plonk there in like a refugee settlement by the Kiba Canal. And that's where we get to Ezekiel's story. So in chapter 33, someone comes from Jerusalem to 
Ezekiel and says the city is smitten. It's gone. The whole temple has been torn down. Babylon has sacked the whole city, burned the whole place, and trashed the temple to the ground. Solomon's temple, the one we just saw. Wow, cry like mad, wait. Yeah, wow, it's like the, the it's not just defeat, no, Sudala defeat, right? It's like they must go and desecrate your house, they must go and cut all your most loved things, and then it's utter shame and humiliation and weeping and mourning. That's where we find ourselves right now. And into this situation, in Ezekiel chapter 40, God takes Ezekiel into a supernatural vision and takes him back to a temple. And this is, this is big. This is big news because a temple simultaneously has been raised to the ground. And so Ezekiel is taken into a vision of a temple. It's like the Solomon's temple, but it is not the same. It's same, same, but different. Okay, And will, I'll show you the differences later. And so right now, no real temple, but there is a vision of a temple okay and so we see right that over time okay ezekiel and all of the other people okay are under babylonian rule and one one babylonian king follows another they end up with syrophoenician kings and one of them king cyrus releases all the jews and he says all of y'all go home right this is my new policy for my foreigners go home and i want you to go back and what rebuild your own temple in fact, I will fund the rebuilding of your temple. And that's the story we see in the book of Ezra and the book of Haggai, right? That God's people start to be sent back. And then after that, Nehemiah follows suit and then rebuilds the walls of the city and completes the entire thing. Temple growing out to be a city. You're going to see that in Ezekiel. Temple growing out to be a city, right? Okay, but let's hang on on this, okay? Cyrus sends them home to rebuild their temple. So what do they do? They go back and they rebuild the temple. You see that in Haggai, right? That after 14 years, they finally finished rebuilding the temple. So good, right? Now, they rebuild the temple over the same plot of land, okay? But the, the building of the new temple is not the same setup as Solomon's temple. They build it differently, okay? Now, if you click to the next slide, it eventually comes to be known as Herod's temple. But then if you, if you kind of know your Bible timeline, like, hey, why is it called Herod's temple? Is it Herod from Jesus' time? You know, you think like four or five hundred years apart between these two? Yes, there is. And the reason why it's called Herod's temple is that it's because this temple, I'm going to call it Ezra's, it's Ezra slash Herod's temple, okay? Let's call it Ezra slash Herod's temple. This temple, man, it went through so many rounds of trauma, so many rounds of, of pain and desecration, and they have to be rededicated and then gonna desecrate and then rededicate, you know, holy thing, you know, become defiled, you know. So 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 here are a few things, right? On one occasion, Alexander, there is so this in between your old and new testament. What happens between the old and new testament? Some of these things happen. Alexander the Great, uh, uh close to destroys the close to destroying the whole temple all over again, just like the Babylonians did. Alexander the Great nearly destroys the whole temple. And the history uh, 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 stories say that it is only 
down to like some really good diplomacy and flattery on the part of the Jewish uh, 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 nobles that managed to to calm down Alexander the Great uh, so that nothing happened, right? So that nothing happened. But then, of course, we know that the the Helen the Hellenistic um, uh, Empire was there, Alexander's Empire was there, and so uh, one of the future leaders called Antiochus Epiphanes Epiphanes. I don't really know how to pronounce it, right? Um, the fourth, right? He, they take over the temple and then they start doing their own Greek practices in the temple, which you know, I really cannot know. The Jewish is like super, like must jaga the thing, right? And they sacrifice a pig on it, okay? And, and that is like the ultimate, it's like, that is equivalent to sacrificing a pig in some other worship place that is nearer to home. Right? Like it is that is that level, okay? It's that level of haram, right? It's that level of haram. You really cannot do that. That is so bad, right? So so they did it, right? They sacrificed the pig on it. Okay, over and then they have to they have to cleanse law, they have to rededicate the temple over to, to God law, you know. And then but of course they stick they, they, they took up they meaning the, the you know after Alexander's kingdom broke up, the Seleucids were, were occupying the land of Judah, and so they started to occupy the temple and forced the Hebrew uh, uh, um, priesthood to perform Greek worship practices, Greek sacrifices, right? And so on one occasion, this guy, this Hebrew called Metathias, okay, refused and on the spot, he killed uh, uh, the Seleucid officer uh, who was making him Bersamba Hale, right? And he killed the guy, you know, and uh, dead men, dead foreign men in the temple. Oh my gosh, like lagi haram, super cannot, right? And so they have to rededicate the temple over again, law. And then years later, uh, the Roman Emperor Pompey not just went into the temple, but he went past all the different courts, all the way into the Holy of Holies. He muscled the Holy of Holies. Actually, even the priest cannot simply, simply muscle the Holy of Holies. And Pompey went in. Wow, didn't die, man. I tell you, not scared, right? Uh, he, in so doing, again, desecrate Herod's temple, that, that temple, Ezra Herod temple, right? And so I have to rededicate again, law, you know? So, so much trauma um, in that temple. And then over time, uh, a Jewish man became kind of like a, it's kind of like a regional, local king, tribal king of, of, of this place. And that's King Herod. And Herod rebuilt, okay? And he, he, he did a reno job, okay? He did a renovation job um, on the Ezra temple, refurbished it, renewed it, extended it. So he grew it to become bigger. And that's why it's known as Herod's Temple. This was the Herod who killed all the baby boys when Jesus was born. So now, I've helped you to link the two, the, the two testaments, right? Your Old and New Testament, right? This is the Herod, okay, uh, um, uh, who was so insecure because a king was born, right? And this is the same temple that Jesus squatted down and wrote with his finger on the floor when they, when they brought the woman uh, uh, who committed adultery. This is the same temple that Jesus stood there with the fire burning and he said, I am the light of the world. You know, this is the same temple during Jesus' time. Right? And so you see, this is a Herod's temple of Jesus. Now, now let's go back, right? Let's go back from the Herod's from Herod's temple to look at now we are back in Ezekiel. Okay. We're back in Ezekiel chapter 40. Right? And Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel receives a vision, and the vision is of a temple. Oh, oh, sorry, 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 by the way. Um, sorry, let's go back to the one before this, right? Um the go back to the 
one before this, just the Solomon's temple, sorry, Herod's temple, Herod's temple. About 30 years, 40 years after Jesus dies on the cross, Rome comes in, sacks this temple, completely destroys it, raises it to the ground. So the second temple has been destroyed. Solomon's temple destroyed, Herod's temple destroyed, raised to the ground, and actually Jesus foretold this. He said, not one stone will be left standing on each other. Everything will be rubble. And so everything was rubble, okay? AD 70, that's an important date, right? 70 years into our, into our present calculation of time, right? Okay, he, they, Rome raised it to the ground, and about 550 years, thereabouts, 500-ish plus years, after this temple was raised to the ground, um, Islam started spreading, and if I'm not mistaken, Bani Umayyah, uh, uh, um, one of the one of their caliphates, uh, uh, caliphs, uh, built the Temple Mount on the Temple Mount, right? And that's where you see the Al-Aqsa Mosque today is built there. Then the Dome on the Rock is there, and it remains there until today. Okay, this was in six hundred eighty something, if I'm not mistaken. And so this is the hotly contested plot of land because some people say let's build a temple there again, right? And so we'll get into that later. Now, um, I want to show you that now let's rewind back to Ezekiel 40. Ezekiel is back in uh, 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 um, Babylon and he gets this vision, okay? God brought me to the land of Israel, okay? And let's see Ezekiel 40. I'm going to read this, okay, but, I, but, but we'll take it bit by bit. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, so 25 years already are in exile. They are there 70 years, by the way. So, so if you do the math, they are going to be there for another uh, 55 years, right? Uh, uh, more, okay? 45. Is it 45? Yeah, my math. I, I, I can, I, I, maybe I can preach, but I can't count. Okay? So someone else has to count, right? <laughs> At the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, 14th year, after the city was struck down, right? Reference to the city being struck down, okay? On that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on what a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze. This is an angel of the Lord, right? And with a linen cord, a measuring reed in his hand. And, he, and then following from this, he was standing by the gateway and he says, Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I'm going to show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show you all these things. Declare all you see to the house of Israel. I've highlighted this part, a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city. Okay, now, there is Israel, there is Jerusalem, which we always know is on a hill. Jerusalem is on a hill. And then, God brings Ezekiel to a very high mountain from whose vantage point he can see the city on a hill. That, that's Colloquially, it's Jerusalem, right? Okay, now I want you to know this. Topographically, there is no high mountain on the fringes of Jerusalem that is so high that you can see Jerusalem from a vantage point. Okay, there is no such mountain. Okay, so I just wanted to bring you, bring, remind you of this or let you know this because, because we are working with prophetic language. Okay, we're working with prophetic language. Not everything is going to be, is going to be able to work if you try to read it absolutely hard, literal reading. Okay, but we're going to get into that later. 
brought to a high mountain and there was a city, right? And later you're going to see that the city has a temple, okay? So let's move on, right? Now, this is where we get to Ezekiel. I want to show you Ezekiel. I want to show you the temple, okay? Uh, because very soon, if you read now, now if you've got your Bibles with you, okay, and you ever tried to read your Bible cover to cover, there are a few places where you will kantoi. Kantoi means you will fail and you will collapse, okay? Now, one of them is Leviticus. A lot of people kantoi at Leviticus, okay? A another place is the first two, three, four, you know how many chapters of, of First Chronicles where you've got lists of names and then you reach there like, wow, you'll miss one, two days and then you die there, right? Okay? Um, talk to so many people who read their Bibles, okay? And, and try but always fail at some point, okay? One of the places that many people run into cobwebs and never get out of it, okay, is a part like this. Like Ezekiel 40 until the end, it's not easy to read, okay? I'm not going to make any bones about it. It's not easy to read. Ezekiel 40, 41, 42, 43, okay, contains so much measurements, okay? It's got more measurements than like all the recipes in this world, okay? Like it's got so much measurements. Like I, I had this theory that maybe property developers are the only people who would enjoy reading this chapter, okay? Because when they read it, they'll be like, oh, wow, wow, I can see the vantage. Wow, I can see the view. Wow, I can see. I'm like, and then I checked with one and he said, no, <laughs> I find it hard, hard to read as well. So I had a new theory. Maybe only quantity surveyors uh, will enjoy reading Ezekiel uh, 40 to 43. And architects, draftsmen, you know, draftsmen. Uh, um, maybe, I don't know. But we're not going to read three chapters of measurements. And I measured the gems and they were five cubits wide. And I measured the width and it was five cubits wide, right? Um, we're not going to do that because there's a lot of it. But 40 to 42, okay, takes you into the temple. The angel of the Lord measures everything everything is measured okay so let's go let's take you i want to take you on a tour ezekiel is in the center of your screen he's going to take you on a tour okay so ezekiel let's go right he starts off in the east gate chapter 40 verses 5 to 16 okay he's at the east gate y'all can see him right with the yellow arrow there okay okay if you if you want this section you can like make your your your, your share screen view a bit bigger so you can see it, okay? It starts off in the East Gate. The East Gate is going to keep coming back, okay? It's an important gate, all right? He goes in through the East Gate, okay? They measure everything there, then they go in, right? Into the outer court, okay? He goes into the outer court. The outer court is that beige area there, okay? It's, it's the main kind of square, okay? They are in the outer court. That's verse 17 to 19. They measure everything there, okay? And then he goes from the outer court, verse 20 to 23, to the north court. It's just a short section, uh, um, sorry, to the north gate, right? He brings him to the north gate. They measure the stuff there, and quite a lot of the measurements are the same as the east gate. So the, your Bible will say it was the same, you know? And then they will tell you how many cubits, you know? Um, and then suddenly, he boom, from north gate to south gate on the opposite side, bang, right? He ends up in the south gate and they measure everything there. You know, it's the same as north gate, same as east gate, okay? The measurements, okay? And then, um, again, very short. And then there's a longer section of your chapter 40, verse 28 to 43. He goes to the inner court. And, and it's long because he starts describing the things he sees in the inner courts and they measure more things, right, in the inner courts, you know. And then verse 44 to 47, which is a little short section, okay, and um, he goes around to the belakang. Um, it's a little bit like going to, 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 the, to, the, to the spare room in your house, you know, which is usually around the back, you know. And then he goes to the back, that's where the priest chamber is, right. Um, so, so, so the Pekajah's place, uh, they live there, you know. Um, and then after this, 
get this he goes into you see that there's this little place there called the temple okay this little rectangular structure in the middle okay that is the temple that is what contains the most holy place okay and so he goes into the vestibule is the is that space there you know marked with the blue and then within that is purple called the great hall and within that is the holy of holies now Ezekiel in his vision never went all the way into the Holy of Holies. He stood outside, okay, and, and he describes that God, the angel pointed out and said, that is the door. Beyond this is the Holy of Holies, right? He didn't go in. He got as far as this and then he went out, okay? And when he went out, he went back out, um, uh, back to the, to, to the quarters at the back, the temple chambers, okay? And then after being at the temple chambers, he goes back near to the east gate. Uh, um, um, and then from there, he proceeds out of the temple that is literally three chapters of ezekiel's temple um through a little visual tour okay i hope that's helpful now ezekiel's temple is huge it's huge okay compared to herod's temple it's about four times the size of herod's temple and herod's temple is about four times the size of solomon's temple so you do the math, right? I told you I'm not good at math, okay? But it kind of breaks down a bit like this, right? Um, so you must understand, it is 1.5 kilometers wide and it's a perfect cube, right? It's a perfect cube. So it is 1.5 k's away. That is like from here until... It's, it's huge, right? It's huge. So this thing, some people say we got to rebuild it right okay now frankly okay the people who say that it has to be rebuilt one day or there is an aspiration to have it rebuilt um when they actually look at the land um, um at where the temple mount is okay it's it's complicated it's super complicated and if you follow uh, uh, the news surrounding this you will understand that it's complicated so so let's see the next slide you know um, um, okay, I'm not gonna. I, I'm, I'm gonna park that. Okay, put that in the parking lot. Okay, and we're gonna get to that later. Now, remember in the first week, okay, where, where I did the big picture for end times Ezekiel, I shared with you that the glory of the Lord shows up, okay, in Ezekiel's vision to do an assessment, and then he goes through the temple of Israel, and by chapter ten. He says that I've seen them worshipping idols. I've seen them committing sin. I've seen them defiling the holy place. I've seen them doing all these things. And then the glory of God lifts. And when we say the glory of God lifts, it literally means that that intersection place, which is supposed to be his address, God checks out. He checks out and he no longer lives there. So, so when he no longer lives there, you can walk into the Holy of Holies and walk out, nothing happens. There's nothing anymore because you know what? He has left the house. Okay? And, and it's a little bit like, oh my gosh, like if you're married and your spouse gets angry and they leave the house, right? That's like, oh no, this is big, right? This is serious, right? Okay? And, and I want you to know, you want you to feel this. This is not just that. This is like a million times worse. God literally deserts them because of the way they have they have desecrated the holiness of the temple chapter 10 and then you go through all of the center part of ezekiel and then in chapter 43 on uh, you know at, at chapter 43 god returns okay i want to show you the part where he returns and he fills the temple with his glorious presence all over again this is good news this is good news okay so let's look let's look at the bible verse 
now we have jumped to 43 because 40, 41, 42 is all measurements. Okay, we've done that. Chapter 43, verse 1, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing the east gate, remember? And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And he said to me, I've jumped to, chapter, to verse 7, uh, um, the relevant part, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Now, I want you to know this. This is the place of my throne means I will rule and reign from here. Okay? I will rule and reign from here. That's why it means throne, right? Do you have, does anybody have any other meaning for what this is the place of my throne means, right? No, it means this is where I will rule. And the place of the soles of my feet, meaning I will rest here, right? Where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Now, it's forever. It's not just one year. It's not just 10 years. It's not just 100 years. It's not just 1,000 years. It's forever. Okay? So you got to see this text and you got to know that God is saying, I have come back and I'm dwelling and my dwelling in this place is not for a finite period of time. No matter how long you think that finite period is, not for even 1 million years. You know what? It's no point if he dwells there for 1 million years. By 9.9 .9 million years, by, by 0.999 million years, you're starting to freak out because he's going to leave already. You see what I mean now? You don't, I, I, don't want, I don't want God for 100 million years, you know. It's not good enough, you know. You don't want to have a God for, for 100 million years. That's not good enough. Because by 99.99 .99 million years, you're going to freak out because he's going to leave already. You want God for forever. And I don't want to take anything less because Jesus has promised me God forever. Right? And so this is what he says. I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay? Um, now, Jesus talks about the temple. So he's saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to dwell, this is going to be the place of my rule, and I'm going to dwell in this temple forever. And then Jesus, like you cut, right? 400 years later, there's Jesus, 33-year-old man, walking around, ministering, and then he says all these things about the temple. And I want to show you, because we are fast-forwarding to Jesus for some perspective. On one occasion, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign will you show us for, for you know, doing all of these you know, amazing ministry things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. He probably was right there in Herod's temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Hey, can I, can, can you just feel now how offensive that statement is? Like, what? Destroy. You know, we've seen the temple destroyed. We've seen the temple desecrated. It took us, what, 46 years to re renovate this temple, right? In reference to Herod's renovation work, right? And you want to raise it up in three days, right? You see how, what kind of crazy thinking is this? But it says in verse 21, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Wait. I thought temple is temple, ma. You build a temple on the ground, ma, right? No, Jesus is starting to change the temple language. For time immemorial, it was a moving thing, the tabernacle, right? It was nomadic. And then they planted into the ground and became a temple that was had a fixed locale. And now Jesus is saying, no, the temple is my body, right? Okay, 
we're starting to, 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 to adapt to a new way of talking about temple. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, okay? Paul says this um, about Christians who treat their body um, uh, like rubbish, okay? And put their body in the space of all kinds of sin. In, the, in this particular case, it was sexual sin, okay? But let's look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Okay, Okay, I can get it if John 2 says it's Jesus is the temple. He'd be holy, ma, right? Special, ma, son of God, ma, right? But now Paul is saying that, do you not know that your body, O Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Meaning that, what is God? You know, this means that the manifest presence of God is inside you, you know. You are the temple. It means that now, does it mean that what? There's one temple which is the physical temple on the ground and then there's another temple which is me. Are there two different temples? You know, interacting with one another, and if I go into the temple, does the temple go into the okay? <laughs> Let's look at Acts 1. Okay, what does what happens in Acts 1? Right? The disciples are praying in the upper room, and then suddenly there came a mighty uh, sound, okay, of rushing wind. It filled the house, okay, and then divided tongues of, as of fire, right? Sing, 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 you know, starts coming over the heads of the believers, right? And then they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They start breaking out into new tongues, right? And so what you see here, we see in Acts chapter 1, okay, uh, uh, a 500-year later equivalent of what Ezekiel was seeing. The glory of God, the manifest supernatural power of God comes back to the temple, fills it with power, fills all of it. And then you see the glory of God shining. Now, Nobody expected this to be non-brick-and-mortar temple. Everybody expected it to be a brick-and-mortar temple. But what nobody expected was that the glory of God was going to come in the form of tongues of fire, in the form of the Holy Spirit being poured out into the Christian. And then the Christian becomes glorious and beautiful and powerful because God now resides in him and her. And so now everywhere they go, they carry the manifest presence of God, the intersection point of heaven and earth, of God on earth. God's grab food address now is you, your location, mapped to his location. Where you go, he goes. The temple becomes like the tabernacle all over again because it is now freed up from being rooted to the ground and it's mobile. It can move again. That's why John chapter 1 says, And the word became flesh and came and tabernacled among us. Because one level, it is Jesus becoming incarnate and lived for 33 years among us. But on another level, it is that the Word became flesh. It became one with every single one of us. And now, the Word tabernacles among us when we move and when we get to work, when we go to school, when we meet our neighbours, the Word now tabernacles among us. You and I are moving, walking, living, breathing, evangelizing temples. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. I, 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 I'm really sold out to this, okay? Let's look at this, right? Jesus says, Paul says, that when we gather as a church, you know, when we link up together, being joined together, we grow into a holy temple of the Lord. And it's into this containment, right? A church linked up together brick by brick 
then God pours His Spirit inside, you know, so that the church at the gathering, not the building, uh, the gathering becomes a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So there is a sense in which you privately are moving temple and we corporately, collectively as a church are the living body of Christ. That's why the Bible says that you are a living stone, right? Because you are part of that collective which carries the presence of God. And Colossians 1 says that you, it's who's going to bring the word to the Gentiles to make God choose, uh, 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 to them, God chose to make himself known among the Gentiles. And Gentiles, in this case, really the proper meaning is not just people who, who, who are non-Jews. In this case, it is people who don't know Yahweh. And in that time, it was Gentiles. For us today, though we are the Gentile church, there are people outside our doorstep who don't know Jesus, right? Now, God wants to make himself known to all of them, right? Through what? You, Christ in you. Christ in you is temple language. Because it's scandalous in, in before Jesus to say Christ in you or to say Messiah in you. It's scandalous. It cannot one. You cannot talk like that, you know? Because it is like, wow, it's like people get stoned for that. It's blasphemous. But now... When Jesus has gone back to the Father, the Holy Spirit has been deposited inside every Christian. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Does the world outside of us have hope for glory? Yes. Through who? Through Christ. How? Through Christ in you. That's why our altar, our prayer altar in Sunga Glow Church is called Dominate altar because dominate altar means dominate on three levels number one god dominates our hearts christ in you right he dominates our hearts and after dominating our hearts we want him to dominate our atmosphere our homes our families right the things around us right he dominates our hearts he dominates our atmosphere and through us he gives us dominion over the land to rule and reign on his behalf as his proxies as adam always meant to was always meant to rule and reign on behalf of god as his proxy right so you know what i i i really i i really want to show you this when jesus wants to rule over the land he rules over the land through the church you will see it in Ephesians chapter 2. All rule, power, dominion, authority has been placed upon Jesus, okay, because of his humble sacrifice on the cross. And because of that, he puts upon the church the power of all things. You see that in Ephesians 2. Go check it out, right? Okay, he puts all this authority in the church and through the church, he will display his manifest powers to all the powers and principalities of the air. This is, this is like theology of your church, right? Like you must, you must know theology of the church. The church is not just like a group of social club, right? It is how God establishes righteous rule over the land. It's always how he wanted to. He wanted to do it through Adam. He's wanted to do it through David. He's doing it today through the church filled with his power. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay? We are the meeting place between God and the world. That's every single one of us. Let's move on. Now, here's the key question. Is the Ezekiel temple meant to be built? And in the larger scheme of all these people out there, you know, okay, now, I want to give you a bit of historical historical context. Most of the Christian world do not believe that the Ezekiel temple is meant to be built. Okay? 
most of church history going up until the 1800s, nobody expected Ezekiel's temple to be built. Nobody expected the, the instructions in Ezekiel 40, 41 to 43 to be literal and meant to be fulfilled and physically built. Around 1800s, the, the, the idea started uh, to grow that the temple or, or, that, or that Old Testament prophecies, kingdom prophecies needed to be read literally. Okay, it, started, it started that way, a theological idea that Old Testament kingdom prophecies, okay, OTKP, right, okay, um, need to be understood literally as literal, with literal fulfillments. And that grew. Over the last 300 years, that has grown, okay, and today there is a section of, Christian, of, of Christians who believe that if that's to be read literally, it means that the, kingdom, the, the temple must be built. If the temple must be built, and it hasn't been built, it means that it has to be built in the future, right? So, okay, so it's going to be built in the future. Where is it going to be built? The same plot of land um, that was meant to be built, okay? Now, here's the problem. It's 1.5 kilometers square, okay? There's, a, there's an incline. So, so literally, you're going to build downhill or something like that, okay? It's a square, so you can't change it to, build, uh, to, to, to be a rectangle so that you avoid the incline, okay? A decline whatever if not then you build from the edge and you build into the city the old city okay and you're going to go through the western wall and you're going to go into Jew the jewish quarters you're going to go into residential areas okay now people who believe it's meant to be built and people who believe that it doesn't have to be built all look at the map of Jerusalem and say this does not sound possible without some crazy divine supernatural intervention okay we Everybody agrees that on a human level, it looks virtually impossible to recreate Ezekiel's temple in the present site. Okay? Now, I want to add one very important thing. We live in Malaysia. And I'm not saying this just because I'm scared to deal with sensitive issues. I'm saying this because I love my neighbours. And we're all called to love our neighbours. Talking about raising down one person's worship site so that you can build what you think is your own is really not a good look. We live in Malaysia. It's very offensive to our neighbours to even conceive and to articulate it and sometimes even on, 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 on some of the platforms that we have to articulate that it might be a good idea for me to go to your place of worship and raise the whole thing down so that I can build my on it. And let's show some love. Let's show some love to our neighbours. You know what, my friends? Whether you think it doesn't have to be built and you're talking about it, or whether you think it should be built and you're talking about it, we need to find a way to talk about it in a way that is distinctly and contextually Malaysian. So that we don't talk about it without the self-awareness that across our road, actually there is somebody's holy site and that's somebody's place of worship and maybe you buy nasi lemak from her and that's her place of worship and maybe you buy kuih kuih from her and that's her place of worship and we so nice oh hi bang hi ya yeah, and then you go back and you say <laughs> in nicer ways let's tear the thing down and build our own cannot la cannot la okay even if even if that is like you think that's as the eschatological endpoint, the end times endpoint that is going to happen, we need 
to find a way to articulate it in a way that is Malaysian, that understands and fits into this world. Because if we can't find a way to talk about it, then I tell you, church, we can be a Midwestern American. And that's fine because they don't have to deal with, with, with a neighbour who is going to be hurt by this. But our neighbours are going to be hurt by this. So let's have that sensitivity when we move forward. Let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. Now, the feasibility of building it is one thing. Okay. Let's ignore it. Imagine it's possible. Imagine it's possible. I want to show you in Ezekiel 43 why building the temple physically and functioning the temple literally is slightly problematic. If you look at Ezekiel 43, verse 20 says that they will sprinkle the blood of bulls on the horns of the altar. Verse 21 says they will sacrifice a bull as a sin offering. You know what a sin offering is, my friends? A sin offering is when you kill an animal, you transfer, you symbolically transfer the sin of the person onto the animal, you slaughter the animal as a sacrifice so that your sins symbolically are taken on by the animal and that makes atonement for your wrongdoings. Okay, that's, that's the ancient Jews all did this. Pre-Jesus, they were supposed to do this, right? Now, the hypothesis is that maybe we're going to rebuild the temple and we're going to reinstitute sacrificing a bull as a sin offering. Verse 22, sacrifice male goat without blemish. Without blemish always refers to Christ. You guys know this, right? If not, you can sacrifice any old goat. Every time they say without blemish, they're talking about a spotless lamb. And you and I know the spotless lamb. The ultimate spotless lamb is Jesus. Okay? Verse 22 says, we're going to find some male goat without blemish, offer it as a sin offering. Verse 23, bull and ram without blemish as a burnt offering. It's no longer for sins. It's for the pleasure of God. Verse 25, a male goat, bull, ram without blemish as a sin offering again, right? A various series of sacrifices to cleanse the altar and then to and then to atone for every normal person. Verse 27, and then I'll accept you. You go read it for yourself. It's not just saying that all these things will be done. It says all these things will be done and I will accept you, declares Yahweh. Church. You want to reinstitute animal sacrifice in a future temple before God will accept you? Or is there no more need for that? Because Jesus has borne our sins on the cross. Let's look at the verse. In Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus has made redundant the animal sacrifices at the temple. 10 verse 8 in Hebrews. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Right? But what that what, what what does he say? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Meaning that it's offered once and it's active into the past, it's active into the future. Meaning that all the past efforts to recreate this have now been activated. Or rather, this stands for all of that. And what it also means is that this applies for all future. So you no longer need to do all those things to have a picture for this. Now that you have a picture for this, this is it. This applies for everything in the future. That's why today we don't sacrifice bulls and goats. And there are some uh, people who say that, oh, no, the Ezekiel temple, um, they will still sacrifice bulls and goats, but they sacrifice it as a commemoration only. You know, a bit like how we take communion. Now, we take communion to remember Jesus. 
In fact, if anything, the picture God gave us was not continue more sacrifices. He said, take communion. Because communion is my body broken for you. My flesh, my, my, my blood poured out for you. Which is a closer metaphor to Jesus dying on the cross than the sacrificing of bulls and rams. So literally, we are progressing from bulls and rams to communion in order to remember Jesus dying on the cross. And if this happens in the future, and if it's hypothesized that this happens in the future where Jesus physically comes to rule and reign, and you still need a low-resolution memory of him when Jesus is actually there, we need to read our Bibles correctly. And we need to form all the interpretations correctly. Let's move on. Let's move on. More, more troubling things. I, I really am quite troubled by this when people say Ezekiel's temple must be rebuilt, right? Because it doesn't just talk about animal sacrifice being reinstituted. There is neither Jew nor Greek. It cannot lie. Right? Separation. No foreigners can come in. Cannot lie. Because the New Testament teaches us that, that there is no separation of Jews and Greeks, right? Neither Jew nor Greek. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise, right? And not just that. Ezekiel, the Ezekiel temple is supposed to institute circumcision. Hey guys, you and I are pantoila, right? Right? How? Oh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, everybody must circumcise. Then what happens to Galatians 5? Right? Where Paul says, if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. Right? You are severed from Christ if you, if you go back to circumcision. Right? You've fallen away from grace. For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So you know what? We need to find the right way to read Ezekiel 43. If you read it wrong, you want to go back to temple worship, you want to go back to temple sacrifice and all those kind of things, it's wrong. Now, I want to ask you, how do people end up reading Ezekiel 43 and saying we must rebuild the temple and we must reinstitute animal sacrifice. We must reinstitute all these things, right? Separation of Jews and Greeks, let's do it. Circumcision, let's do it. You know? How? What causes that? What's that thinking, right? Now, how are we supposed to understand this temple? Now, for its original recipients, to understand it literally, okay, fair enough, right? Like Ezekiel's people in, in Babylon, to understand it literally, maybe one day they will rebuild it. Okay, but here's a point to note. Even when Cyrus released them and they went back and they had all the land in the world, huh? okay? There are no Al-Aqsa mosques there at the time. They did not build it to spec. Huh? Just so you know, when they were given free reign to build however they like in an open, empty land, they did not rebuild it to Ezekiel's specs which maybe gives you a clue that even the original recipients did not interpret it as a literal rebuilding of the temple. But never mind. How are we, now that we have Jesus, to understand it? A, option one, for us to understand it literally, meaning it's going to happen in actual future, we are going to reinstitute animal worship, animal sacrifice, we're going to reinstitute circumcision and, and separation of Jews and Gentiles. Okay, we're going to do all that. Or B, to understand this as a figurative picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Friends, it's no question. It's no question. If you try to add anything onto Jesus' finished work on the cross, you are severing yourself from grace and from Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5. There is no way we're going to add anything. We are Christians. and Now, how do we end up thinking like that? I want to show you. Okay, so there's a little bit of Bible teaching, okay, or, or, or rather Bible reading principle. How did we end up reading three chapters of Ezekiel and drawing this conclusion. Now, I want to show you wrong way to read your Bible. You read three chapters of Ezekiel, you jump all the way to Revelation, okay, and you bypass everything in between. 
Okay, so the cross, everything, you bypass it, okay? And you merge Ezekiel chapter 3, 43, 2, 1, all that, okay? With Revelation 20, okay? And you gabong the two, where there is supposed to be some future period of time. And you say that, by the way, it's not mentioned in Revelation, huh? the temple is not mentioned in Revelation. So Revelation is not in error, huh? okay? Revelation has no mention of Ezekiel's temple, okay? The people who read this say that in this part of Revelation plus this part of Ezekiel, if this is literal, this must exist here. But it doesn't exist. Here, it's not written, okay? Now, maybe it's there, maybe it's not, right? Maybe it's a low resolution picture of that. We are okay, but to take this, skip across everything in between and build a theology out of that, my friends, is not the right way to read your Bible. It's not the right way to... You don't just cherry-pick a few verses here, cherry-pick a few verses here, and then ignore the centrality of Jesus, ignore the centrality of the cross, ignore the finished work of Christ over our lives. That's not how we read the Bible. So how should we read the Bible? Let me show you how you read the Bible. Everything from Ezekiel should go to the cross. Everything from Revelation should go to the cross. You know, and then everything from everywhere of your Bible should all now be understood through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's why SIBKL is a Christ-centered Bible-based spirit power church, right? We are Christ-centered. You read your Bible in a Christ-centered way, right? Which means that everything you read in your Bible is read through the lens of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Everything that you read about post-Jesus things is also filtered through the same, the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ being the final lens through which everything passes through. Then you build a theology. Even within that, there may be variances, but it's okay. But please, church, when you want to read your Bible, filter everything through the cross because Jesus is the center of our faith not anything else. There is no other center to our faith. There is no other rock. That's why at the start of this sermon, I gravely and fearfully said to you, I have no allegiance to any school of thought. I have no loyalties to any faction, section in, in evangelical Christendom. I don't have. I owe the Lord one allegiance to the cross. I own allegiance to preach to you and teach you the most Christ-centered, cross-centered, cross-shaped, Christ-centered way to read your Bible, and it's this way. And if you read it any other way, you may end up with other conclusions that may not be the actual case. But if you read your Bible with the cross as the centerpiece, you can never go wrong. Or I would like to say that it's a lot harder to go wrong. So let's move on. Let's move on. Will this ever be built? Does it need to be built? There's a lot of, of, of speculation. There's a lot of con conspiracy theory out there. It's okay. Let's put a pause on that. I want to show you the most important thing. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, the hour is coming when neither you or neither on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So today, I just showed you the, 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 the Temple Mount picture. It's so hotly contested because everyone is saying that the temple must be built there, then something is going to happen. All eyes are on Jerusalem. But you know what? Very weird, oh, Jesus said to her, take your eye off Mount Gerizim, take your eye off Jerusalem. You know why? Because the day is coming when that's not going to be the focal point of your worship. In fact, that day is now here. 
I have come to tabernacle in your midst, and I am here. Now it is now here. True worshippers will worship in how? Spirit and in truth. What does worshipping in spirit and in truth mean? It means Christ in you. It means Acts chapter 1, Pentecost. Holy Spirit has come and filled you. Filled you with the Spirit. And now you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have truth in you, the hope of glory. And that is the kind of worship the Father longs. It's, it's, it's there in our Bibles. We just need to find a Christ-centered way to put it all together so that we can see. Church, I want you to know this. Be Christ-centered. Let's move on from this. And, and now I'm really going to close. There is nothing you can add to the finished work on the cross. Nothing. You can't add bulls and goats to the finished work on the cross. If you do that, you sever yourself from grace and Christ. Don't add the sacrifice of future bulls and future goats to your theology. You can't add that. You can't add circumcision to the finished work on the cross. You can't add one race being more special than another race to the finished work of the cross because he said there is neither Jew nor Greek everyone are inheritors are children of the promise of Abraham you can't add your own best your, your, your own effort in order to try to save yourself you can't add that to the finished work on the cross you cannot add you cannot add your sacrifice I serve in church so hard I add that to the cross you can't add that to the finished work of the cross you can't add your allegiance to, to, to a certain party, a certain group, a certain nation. You can't add that to the finished work of the cross. Jesus plus nothing else. Jesus plus nothing else. You already have everything. You already have everything. This is not mine. I didn't coin this. Someone else coined this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Add nothing to the finished work on the cross. Look at the cross as the most important part of your faith. Never lose sight. Keep Jesus in focus. No matter what the whole world is saying, no matter what's happening in the whole world, whether there is turmoil or whether there is conspiracy theory, keep Jesus as the focus and add nothing to the centrality and sufficiency of Jesus. Because you can have everything but the moment you lose sight of Jesus, you've got nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Church, on this note, I want to say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh Father, we thank you, Lord God. Alabapa kami sanjungi namamu Tuhan. Kami pujimu namamu Tuhan. Oh, engkau lah Allah kepada kami. You are our God. Yesus, engkau lah, engkau lah centerpiece dalam dalam iman kami. You are the centerpiece of our love, of our worship. You are the centerpiece of our lives. Jesus, we want to make you the most important thing in our faith, in our lives, in our in in, in our future. We want to put our full trust in you, Jesus. If anything distracts us from you. Father, we pray that we can keep our eyes back on you. If COVID distracts any one of you from Jesus, keep your eyes back on Jesus. If a financial situation distracts you, keep your eyes back on Jesus. If health distracts you away from Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus. Peace of our centerpiece, 
Lord Jesus Christ, our great mighty King, and the infilling power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with every single one of us until we meet again and all of God's people shout aloud. Amen. <laughs>